Hey, so episode four, huh? I'm finding that I'm really digging this whole podcast thing. I mean, I'm digging the whole Code of the West thing in general. It's nice to have something fun to play around with. Don't have to ask permission to play and come up with ideas. Just kind of do it. And I get a little obsessive about things, kind of like I was talking about in the last episode with my family, the Hunts. We kind of we're just workers. And so when you get something that you really are excited about or you can sink your teeth into, it's kind of hard to to give it up. You get momentum. It's exciting. I really enjoy it. And that's that's really how I'm feeling about the this whole project. And I've thought about doing a podcast for a long time, and I'm, I'm slowly getting more comfortable with the idea of doing it as I'm doing it, which probably sounds funny, but it kind of ties into what I want to talk about today. And it's not so much like this episode won't be so much about the code of the West, but I mean, I feel like you guys have kind of been picking up on the fact that that's my way of sort of creating the myth and the story around how I view the world and how I interact with you know a lot of the people that I grew up with, friends of mine. And I do want to get to that point where I'm talking to and interviewing people who have these interesting trades that a lot of us don't really know about or take for granted. But instead of, I obviously don't have a guest right now, <laughs> and instead of just telling you stories about my past and my childhood, giving you context, I I, I, I do want to talk about something that is personal to me, but it's it's more of an existential thing. It's it's something that's come up a lot since I've done comics, but it's kind of always been this thing since I was little. And it's it's how people view creative talent, or, or you could even say talent in general, you know, and success actually. So a lot of times when you tune into somebody's life, if you've never met them, they've done something to gain your attention, you know, and that, you know, in your day to day life, that's just kind of a normal thing. You just meet people that come and go. But for instance, you might be listening to me and have never met me. You might not know me, know me from sweet fuck all. And however set of circumstances, whatever those circumstances were that came together for you to find this, I, I don't know or can't control your perception of me. I don't know what you think I am or where I came from. It's part of the reason why I wanted to tell you a little bit about myself. And even for the people that do know parts of me, they don't necessarily know everything. But I think we have a tendency to see people when they've achieved something or, or they've decided to do something and it looks polished enough and there seems to be enough momentum or, or weight behind it that at least what I've noticed a lot of times over the years is a lot of people tend to look at that as some sort of lottery, as if the person was right place, right time, or they were born with a certain skill or, or I, I say typically obsession, <laughs> going back to kind of the hunt thing. But I wanted to talk about this today on this, on this episode, because it's something that's bugged me over the years, because it started at first when I was in my 20s, when I, I really just sucked at comics. I mean, I hadn't really even started making them yet, but I decided that I was going to go full tilt and try to do it. And I started talking to Paul on Flickr. And I decided to just tell people, you know, when they asked, what do you do? And I was like, okay, well, I work at Starbucks, but, you know, I'm, I'm actually working into being a comic book artist and writer and creator. And people are like, oh, that's pretty cool. Like, what's that? And I'm like, in my head, I'm like, I don't fucking know yet. I'm figuring it out, dude. But 
but I was passionate about it, even though, and I was honest, I wasn't like saying, yo, I'm King Shit of Fuck Mountain. I'm just like, this is what I'm going to do. I'm doing this right now, but I'm going to work and get to this other thing. And so a lot, at that point in time, a lot of people were like, oh man, I wish, I wish I, I wish I knew what I wanted to do. Cause you know, you're in your early twenties at this point and you're kind of allowed to fuck around, even if you're going to college and it's like, whatever, when you're in your early twenties, you can kind of like float and wander a little bit. You'll find yourself. But I was like, no, I'm going to, I'm going to start grinding. I'm going to start chopping wood, carrying water and do my first thousand ink drawings like Paul told me to do. And so I was doing that and kept saying, yeah, yeah, doing this, but want to do that. And then next phase was kind of good enough that I'm starting to be able to not get work in professional comics, but I'm doing my thing. I'm self-publishing and people around town in Boise. I'm like, at this point, I'm just a social butterfly because I'd been such a socially awkward kid. I figured out how to talk to people, which was really easy. It was just pretend like everybody's as awkward and introverted as you are and then be the person you wish someone was for you for everybody else. And so then that's how you talk to everybody. But so at this point, I'm pretty good at just going up to strangers and talking. And, you know, now the conversation is uh, like, oh, yeah, that's, you know, that's Chris. What's Chris do? Oh, he's he, he's a comic book guy. He's getting there. He's, he's just starting out. And people would talk to me. And now instead of just, oh, I wish I knew what my passion was, I'm getting good enough that people are like, oh, man, you know, I wish I had your talent. I wish I had that. And at that point, I really hadn't been going at it long enough to really have an opinion about that. But it, it stuck in my my mind a bit. Didn't quite sound right to me. And it again, it, it wasn't meant to be offensive coming from that person. But in my head, I'm like, I'm not not even a self-deprecating or faux humble way. I'm like, I'm not, I know I'm not that good. And the only reason why I'm as good as I am is just because I'm just sitting down and practicing. And, I, you know, I would take pen and paper with me everywhere I, I went. If I thought we were out at a bar, I was drawing while I was having a conversation, party, break at work. I was just trying to get those reps in all the time, every day, every little gap. I was trying to just get get the reps, get a little bit of practice, get one more thousand ink drawing going. And some people saw that. Some people, my close friends who just saw me enough, saw me doing that repeatedly. And it was just kind of a joke and people knew. And I would put it down. I wasn't always doing that, but it was always, it was always with me at some point, you know, during the day or in the evening. And then you get to the point where like I'm actually doing professional stuff. And that's where that's where it starts to get frustrating a little bit and where it really started to stick out in the back of my mind where people, because now I'm in my mid to late 20s. And so people, people were already giving up at that point. Of course, you know, my generation left college when the recession hit in, you know, the late aughts back in my day. <laughs> uh, so I knew people who like graduated from Stanford and Brown and pretty prestigious colleges that went straight back to their parents' basements just because there weren't jobs available. And meanwhile, I'm, I didn't go to college and I did the Starbucks store manager thing while also doing the grind on this comic book thing. So I don't have any debt. I don't have a fancy car or a big house or anything, but I'm, I'm like feeling pretty, 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 pretty okay about the path that I'm on. Cause I'm, I'm kind of getting into the groovy spot getting some momentum where I'm, I'm really starting to feel like even though that it's 
hard and it's been years at this point of grinding, I'm seeing the, I'm not seeing the light at the end of the tunnel, but I'm starting to see the tunnel at the very least. And what, what frustrates me or frustrated me, well, it still does about this whole, like, I wish I had your talent thing is that not just that I think that people were, it's a little condescending, I think, to basically say, oh, wow, man, if I, if I were like you and had just been won the lottery, been born with this skill, I guess I could do some stuff too. Because the reason why I don't like it is that it kind of, it kind of implies that I'm not working. I'm not trying because I don't think I have any preach natural skill. I think I have a tendency towards obsessing over storytelling and drawing, but, but the talent isn't there. The, the, the talent, whatever that is or whatever that means, is just a skill that is just developed over time from practice. Honestly, this is part of the reason why I tend to relate more to, to, to trades and blue collar occupations because they don't take themselves so seriously. They, they also understand that it's time. You've got to apprentice if you're going to be a lineman or you're going to be like an, an electrician. You, you've got to sort of be the low man for a bit. And if you're smart, you're paying attention and you're learning as you go. And then you gradually move up and up in responsibility and skill. Excuse me. And so for some reason, that's translatable to people if they're, you know, you're describing like building something, you know, because most people are completely out of their element trying to patch drywall or, I don't know, swap out a part on an engine. Even though, once again, these are relatively simple things if you just take the time, and there's probably a fucking YouTube tutorial for it at this point. Uh, but if you take the time to just look and you can get over the fear of fucking up, it's all there. But it, people don't look at it the same way with with art or office jobs, things that require degrees typically. It's it's like you you just either go through the hoops and then there you go, you've been minted as a creative director or as an accountant. And sure, there's skills or knowledge that you gain from those kinds of educations. But I think it kind of sets up this weird expectation that you just have it or you don't. Whereas again, these trades, you, you literally have to just be the low man for years in some cases before you're allowed to have the responsibility of just being your own full-fledged person in the occupation. And so for me, like, that's how I view everything. Sorry, I got to take a drink of water here. You want to do a podcast? You're going to suck at it. You're going to suck at it, but you're going to start it. You start it, you suck. No one's going to listen. You're not going to know what you're talking about. You're going to be in your kitchen <laughs> at your counter talking into a microphone like a crazy person. That's just what it's going to be. And the sooner you embrace that and just enjoy the ride and, and just the the weird learning space that that is, man, it it opens up so many doors to to just to just be able to to just try something. That's all. A lot of these successful people that you're looking at or looking up to is them just going, fuck, you know what? Like, I don't know how I'm going to do this, but I'm going to give it a shot. And it. And it 
the, it's an oversimplification kind of, but not really. And it's just, it's just every day getting back up and being like, fuck, okay. I don't want to speak for my boss right now, but you know, the person that I work for at Black Rifle, he didn't spend 20 years learning how to be a CEO. He spent 20 years doing something else that was very, I mean, there's transferable knowledge in leading teams of, of men, but it's not, it's not exactly the same thing. You know, there's a lot of really specific knowledge you need to know how to scale a business, how to market, how to, how to, you know, coordinate creative efforts, how to roast coffee. (laughs) Uh, And you just, you just got to keep going. You know, it's the grandpa hunt thing. It's the start sweeping the floor and maybe eventually you're going to own this, uh, own the place. And so that's kind of what I want to talk about today or, you know, elaborate on because I don't want anybody to think I've already had people kind of, well, this code of the West thing is interesting to me because like I said, the whole reason this thing started was just me fucking around and people kind of thought it was something almost immediately just because it's the first time that I I actually put all these different skills and knowledge into play into this one thing and made something that looked comparable to a thing that has been established. Because most of the time you're figuring this stuff out as you go. You know, you you know, if you're going to start a podcast, you probably don't know how to do a logo. You probably don't know how to do merchandise. You probably don't know how to tell a story. I have all that and then some. And I'm not saying that in a braggy way. It's kind of braggy. I apologize. But my point of saying it is that I've accumulated this knowledge over three and a half decades plus total. And I I just did it bits and pieces at a time. And I waited until, I wouldn't even say I consciously waited. I just, I would try things. I would start a new website. In fact, the Code of the West website, like that actual website was a different website called TCBZFG that I started in 2016. And I didn't know what it was going to be. I just wanted to do something that was a little bit different than comics. And it was this very free form, kind of rock and roll oriented. I say that, I mean, I don't know what that means. It just, to me, it felt like kind of punk rockish. And it was a lot of really rough textures and like sort of graphics that I was doing. And it kind of actually led me to the style that I developed that I draw in now on the iPad. Cause I was just trying to figure out how to use the iPad. That was another thing actually, cause I, I learned traditionally how to draw comics, uh, brush, sable hair, brush, sumi ink, Bristol board. That was the jam. That was, that was my dream. That's what I wanted to do. Spent years doing it. I had also seen friends who had done photography in the early two thousands had gone to school for it and refused to transition digital. And those people, some of them work at Amazon call centers now. There's nothing wrong with that at all. My point with saying it, though, is that that was not their plan. Their plan was to be professional photographers. And you could still have a career doing shooting film. I mean, ironically, that came back and became a thing in its own aesthetic. But these people didn't adapt is what I'm getting at. And so I saw the iPad coming iPad Pro and the Cintiq. And I was like, shit, I probably should figure out how to use this. Very quickly, I I realized like, it's going to take a while to figure out how to use this, but I can see the potential in it. I'm going to have to suck for a bit. And so I didn't do my professional work really on it at first. I I ended up doing 
a comic called Murder Ballads for Z2, which was kind of like their first foray into a music book. It That's kind of their thing now is they do uh, books, licensed books with bands and estates of, of bands or musicians. But at the time, this was a book that was written about, it was like a fictional book about like a blues duo you'd never heard of. And it was this underground, uh, it was like a brother, two brothers. And um, one of the guys from the Black Keys did the soundtrack for it, but they did it in such a way that you, they presented the music with the book as if it was the album produced inside of the story. It's a really cool concept. And so you ended up with a book and an album if you bought this thing or an EP. And anyways, I, I that was the first comic that I drew digitally. And it was <laughs> it wasn't bad, but it wasn't. I was still figuring things out. I'll put it to you that way. And, and it, it was it was good enough. Let's say that. And I just kept going, kept going. And my style changed. I got faster. I was able to do more work now because I, I was able to change things and edit things quicker. I didn't have to wait for the ink to set up. I didn't have to, I, even the ink, as, as much of a master's tool as a brush and ink is, I didn't have to really worry about fucking up because I could go back and edit it. What was interesting, though, is I, the, the tools that I was using on the iPad, they were meant to replicate the brush. And a lot of these tools have these built-in assists for the people who don't have that physical control to, to look, make the lines look strong and fancy and all that shit. I had that already from years of practice. So what ended up happening is I turned all that stuff off and was able to take all that knowledge that I had accumulated over the years of doing it the, the analog conventional way and then start fucking with it in a digital way and then doing things I couldn't do in an analog fashion with the analog knowledge. So I ended up with this whole different skill set and it's what allowed me to work for Filson and it's what allowed me to end up coming to work for Black Rifle. And now I'm now I'm like, I might as well be hosting clinics on how to use Procreate to, to make art, commercial art. I, it seems like every couple of weeks I'm helping somebody who's getting an iPad at work or is a friend of ours at one of these other companies. And I love that. But I wouldn't have I wouldn't have done it if I was afraid to try the new tool. And I think fear is what a lot of this is rooted in. You know, when people are saying, well, I wish... I wish I was able to do what you did. I wish I had that skill or that talent. I think what they're really saying is I am freaked out beyond measure to attempt to put myself in a space where I might be vulnerable and I might look stupid or I might not be great. Newsflash, if you've never done it before, you're going to suck at it. And that shouldn't be surprising, but maybe it's because we get older and we get pretty good at the things that we have tried and we just don't want to try new things. I don't know what it is because I'm, that's not that's not my lane. My lane is to I just it's built into me for some reason to just like be a sponge and absorb as much information as I possibly can. And maybe that's my maybe that's my thing. Maybe that's my lucky thing that I got. But I think that's something you can learn to to cope with. I think that I wasn't always like that, so I must have learned it somewhere. Wasn't born that way. And I think that if you can remove that fear, because I mean, what are we talking about here? Like if you want to record that podcast, just record it. If it sucks, don't don't put it out anywhere. Just keep recording them by yourself until you figure out your cadence or, well, shit, I noticed that I kept saying, um, um, in the first two episodes. I'm still going to say it on this episode, but 
what I, what I read on the internet is that you just pause. It's a weird tick that you have, that a lot of people have. And instead of going, um, you just pause. So I'm working on that. If, if I was afraid of being embarrassed by it, I wouldn't be doing these podcasts. I wouldn't be putting them out. I wouldn't have listened to it again and then been like, God damn it. Um, 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 it was driving me nuts. If you listen to the first episode, it's nothing but ums. And now I feel like everybody's gonna be counting my ums for the rest of this episode. <laughs> but what I'm trying to get at, or I'm trying to maybe inspire in some of you is just, just going for it. The cost of doing business in a literal and a metaphorical way is so low now. All of these tools who other people have experimented with and refined over the past 10, 15 years, they're all out there. Fucking some of them are free. A lot of them are free. I'm recording this on GarageBand and it's free on my fucking laptop. What do you have to lose? You will get better. And that's why I always say, I'm always talking about chopping wood and carrying water. I actually happen to really like chopping wood or splitting wood. And I've gotten pretty good at it. In a literal metaphor, I've like got my whole thing worked out. I kind of chop like a granny. I don't do like the the sort of under underarm over uh, shoulder swing. I do like a samurai chop. But I've gotten my I've gotten my technique down just from doing it. And that's the thousand ink drawings. And I don't know what that thing might be for you, what that thing is that you've thought about that you're too embarrassed to admit. I don't know if you want to go pole dancing or if you <laughs> want to be a professional fly fisherman. I don't know what it is. But the, I think most people have something. I, I, have to, I have to imagine most pe people have something. And I think that the real challenge of the task is just giving yourself that freedom to just think about it and maybe finding that quiet time, turning off Instagram for a night, just chilling out, putting some good music on, laying the fucking floor. I don't know. Just kind of hang, just chill and give yourself that breath to just think or not think. I don't know. I mean, I, I think I think there's probably a lot of overstimulation amongst us. I kills me every time my phone tells me what my average screen time was on my phone for the week at the end of it. And I feel like I can I can just justify it or rationalize it between all my black rifle stuff. Now this stuff, talking to people on Instagram, looking at my analytics, but You, you can you can let yourself have that little space, I think. And then you figure out what that is. You figure out what makes you happy or what you think you'd like to try. And then you realize that, like, this is the other part of this, is that you don't have to be famous or make a shit ton of money to enjoy doing it and to get some satisfaction out of it. Like, why are you doing it? If you can figure out that thing or you figure out what you think is the thing, are you doing it for the love of the game? Or are you doing it because you want to be famous and have a lot of followers on Instagram? And I would say, I would argue that the latter is not nuts. That's kind of like a push and a rope thing. It's chasing the wind. It's an Ecclesiastes. Uh, it's it's not. You can't dedicate your existence and bend your existence towards succeeding at something for the wrong reasons. I mean, you can, and plenty of people have done it. But that's where you end up with the midlife crisis or you just, you know, end up like an Andrew Carnegie and bury a bunch of bodies <laughs> around your steel industry and then get really guilty about it at the end of your life and just start building a bunch of fucking libraries. But 
does that make sense? What I'm saying? Like, you probably have something that you don't want to admit or someone told you when you were a kid. No, that's a stupid idea. I can't tell you how many people told me being a comic book artist was a bad idea. I had I had fathers of girlfriends. Actually, it was a, it was a lot of those. But uh, the 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 most common one I got was Chris. You're so smart. Why would you want to do that? Why would you want to do comic books? Because I want to. Because it's it excites me. Like so many people just. I don't know. They seem like they're the walking dead. They, and it, and it happens to us early. It's, it's like it, I was rewatching Ghostbusters afterlife last night, which phenomenal movie. I loved it. If any, I'm not going to ruin it for anybody, but uh, at one point, Phoebe Egon's granddaughter <laughs> refers to school as state sponsored work camps. And that's pretty much how I felt about public school as a kid growing up. I remember they used to make us take, and I assume they still do it now, would make you take tests that would kind of help guide your decisions for classes you would take and potential careers. And I was a bit of an outspoken little shit. And I just thought that was really weird and, and icky to be trying to tell a 12-year-old what they should do. But I remember taking this test in seventh grade when I was 12. And the three careers I was told would really fit fit me would be a priest oh shit what were the three i remember two of them it was like a priest and something random totally off the wall like garbage man it wasn't like that but it was something like that and then none like i mean none like a female catholic devotee and at that point i'm like well this is this is bullshit (laughs) they don't even they don't even know what my gender is, uh, given the, the the context of this test, uh, the, these are these are this, these are two different jobs, very much related. That you kind of have to be one or the other for, and so that pretty much broke that whole thing for me. And they they would have you take these these tests, especially junior and senior senior year. And I'm like, what is what is a you know. Iowa basic test format, choose your own adventure test going to tell. They don't know enough about me. There's not enough nuance here. They're just trying to get me to, well, I felt this way anyways. I was like, they're just trying to get me to just fill a gap in the, in the job force. I'm going to go find what I want to do. Same with art school. I, I worked and worked and had a portfolio my senior year to take to be judged and hopefully get some scholarships. And I went to CCAD in Columbus where they're holding this big job or school fair. And uh, CCAD gave me a good review. Got like what would have been half of a half of the four year program would have been covered with the scholarship they offered eventually. And then I went I went to the school, the Art Institute of Chicago's little booth area, which is a prestigious school. And I was accepted there, actually, which I was like, cool. This is kind of the start of my like who gives a fuck phase. And because like when I was talking to this woman, I had a bunch of different stuff in my portfolio, watercolors, acrylics, and I inked comics to the best of my ability and knowledge at that time. And she was asking me, like, well, what is your style? What do you want to do? And I was like, oh, well, my style is comic books. I want to draw comics. And there's even now there really isn't like a degree for comics. And she looked at me kind of with sort of like squinty eyes and said, oh, you don't have a style. We'll give you your style. 
and for and right there in my mind, I said to myself, "There's there's no way I'm going to go to art school because <laughs> for one, I'm not. I just told this woman I want to make comics, not draw in the style of comics. I want to make comics, and she's just yeah, whatever. And and like I said, I was accepted at that school, and I think it would have been about a hundred thousand dollars in total to get meh, an art degree. I couldn't even tell you what the degree would have been in a hundred thousand dollars to go make quote unquote art eventually. And in my, in my heart, in my gut, I'm, I'm thinking to myself, I'm just going to be a graphic designer with a shit ton of debt, neither of which I want. And so I, I, when I decided not to go to art school, which is what my decision was, I had my art teacher been in my ear. You're making a mistake. This is the worst thing you could possibly do. You're not going to achieve your dreams. She was well-intentioned. And I would say probably 90 95% of the time, maybe 99% of the time, she would have been right. Me making that decision, even at that time, I, I pretty much had decided, well, no art school, no art. But the the bug was still there. And it took me a couple of years to get back to it. It was trying to go to school for a year at BSU, which basically just was just me going to philosophy, judo and economics, and then playing a shit ton of poker at a house on campus and then flunking out and then going to Starbucks and then being a store manager at 20. Well, I technically got the job at 21, but I was 22 when the store opened. And it was around 2021 20, when I picked up Paul. So Paul, who I told you about, who had written THB, which was the first comic that I read. He had done a book called Batman Year 100 in 2009? 2009, 2000? No, oh, that's fucked up. 2005, 2006. And I was kind of out of the game. I hadn't really been paying attention. And I picked the book up and was just blown away because his skill had increased in that time. And so he was a much better artist than he was, and he was already great. And the book was just so fucking cool. And it just, I mean, it went from like having like the pilot light on in the furnace to just full-fledged steam locomotive just cranking down down the, down the track. And I mean, the, the night that I read Year 100, I, I sent Paul a message on Flickr. And it was like, I, it was a note that I'd wanted to send as a kid. It, that was just a thank you. Thank you for inspiring me. I want to do this. Except in this case, it was thank you for inspiring me. I want to do this, even though I decided not to. I'm gonna, I'm gonna do it. So thank you. And then it, I didn't get a response. Didn't expect one. It was, wasn't like creepy, Fanny, but it was, it was like a fan letter. And so I, I went to work. I, I was like, okay, he uses brushes. He uses paper. Clearly, I'll start there. Started with all the wrong things, and I was getting super frustrated after a couple of weeks. And so I thought to myself, you know what? What do I have to lose to just send this guy one more note and ask for help? And I asked for help in a way that was, it didn't require a lot of him. What I did was I very succinctly said, hey, me again, hi. <laughs> I tried to do this. I know you use brushes. I know you use paper. I clearly am using the wrong, all of the above. Could you just tell me what brushes to get, what ink to get, what paper, and I will never bother you again. Within like 15 minutes, he responded to me 
And he's like, okay, well, ideally you'd want to use sable hairbrushes, but you know, sort of the synthetic watercolor brushes work okay. Use Sumi ink. By the way, it's going to gunk up in your brush. You need to use this kind of brush cleaner. This is how you clean the brush. I like I like a smooth Bristol board, 110 pound. By the way, you're going to hate your first thousand ink drawings. So just get after it. And this dude was my hero. I mean, this guy, out of anybody in my life, th- this was the, this was a person who I didn't even know when I was exposed to his his creativity in his mind changed the course of my life. If I had not read THB, I don't know where I would have ended up or what I would have ended up doing. But I did read THB and it became, I mean, it became everything. I would carry those comics around with me from age nine to 17 till I graduated high school. They were always in my bag with me. And the other things that he'd done uh, within that time frame. So for him to respond to me was... I mean, I don't even know what to compare that to. It makes me emotional to think about it now because it was it was the first time that something impossible happened to me just as a result of saying fuck it and not like what what would have been the worst thing that happened to me writing that no response? It's just like, oh, okay, I didn't really expect one. So, I mean, I guess he could have responded with like, don't bother me, kid. Or something, and it's like even then, it's like okay, well, yeah, he's a human. He's got shit going on. I can't assume that he just wants to sit and have a conversation about making comics with a stranger online. So I was like, "Thank you, appreciate it." Mm. And and what I did do because on Flickr you had like profiles and you had uh, the ability to put folders up and things. So I just started doing a thousand ink drawings. I took I took it literally, and started putting up one of 1,000 to 1,000. I, I mentioned this before, but what was I didn't expect is Paul started commenting on him. And he started saying things along the lines of, wow, this isn't that bad, actually. <laughs> you know, or this is, I, 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 I wasn't this good at number three. And it was just like pouring gasoline on a fire. <laughs> I mean, it just ignited me. And... It was it, it, within a short period of time, about a month, I was able to have this quantifiable data and, and where I could look and see, and I thought about it in these terms, where I thought to myself, man, this is the way to go. You just gotta, you gotta just take a chance every once in a while, be courteous, be mindful of people's time, and just, it's okay to ask because I'm getting feedback from this guy. And and then when I, after I got these comments, I, was, I didn't want to spook the unicorn or anything, but at a certain point I sent a message and I asked him, hey, this one comic that you did in the back of one of these THBs where all the characters are arguing about how many legs a chair should have, were, is that a comic about like Plato's ideal? And he responds back, he's like, holy shit, like, yeah, but no, no one's ever noticed that before. And then it turns into this conversation about Atlas Shrugged and Napoleon Hill and, and, and philosophy and economics. And I suddenly realized that, holy shit, I don't know if this guy incepted me or if this is a complete fluke. But at this point in my life, I'm realizing that this guy had buried shit in, in these comics that uh, resonated with me in an active, conscious way 
that I had not known, I had unconsciously just absorbed or I guess not noticed one of the two in these comics over the years. And we just became friends. Eventually, when I moved to New York, I moved to New York to be Paul's assistant. And the day after I, well, no, the day that I got there, actually, Paul's book, Battling Boy, came out. And I was at a, the book release at the Society of Illustrators with him. And we went out afterwards and had a great time with friends. And it was like my first night in New York. And he was working out of the Flatiron Building at the time, which is that iconic wedge-shaped building in downtown Manhattan. And that's where the publisher First Second was headquartered. And I had a 24-hour access card to the Flatiron Building. And so I would go in and help Paul and organize things, keep things sort of uh, on the, you know, it was not just not administrative. So I did all kinds of stuff. I organized catalogs and uh, gallery shows for him and, you know, organized the art files for scanning. But I would go and work in the Flatiron building at night when he wasn't working. Can you imagine that? Because it's hard for me to even remember it. And, and, and as I'm sitting in the Flatiron, or as I was outside, I used to smoke cigarettes, and as I'd be outside in Manhattan at 11 o'clock at night, all lit up underneath this iconic building, I never stopped thinking about, holy shit, if I hadn't sent this dude a fucking message on Flickr in 2006, I wouldn't be here. Something as simple as that changed my life. Reading the comic that my aunt and uncle didn't have to give me changed my life. But, but that agency part is really what I'm trying to get at is that just, just from, I remember I was, I was terrified. I was scared to send the note to him. I'm saying like, you shouldn't be, but I was, <laughs> if I'm totally honest, because he's your hero. He was my hero. And you don't, you don't want to meet your hero and find out they're an asshole or at least, you know, ignore you. So. I think that was also part of the reason why I got so excited when not only he responded, but he responded in a way that helped me. And and as my my life and career progressed beyond that flat iron phase, it I can't. I mean, I'm always thinking about the fucking flicker, <laughs> like the flicker message, and all those messages that we had back and forth for years before I ever showed up in New York finally in person and met him uh, at a bar in Greenpoint. It's not there anymore. I don't think it's called, it was called Coco 66. And my cousin JB, he was living not far from there. And I was staying with him for a couple of nights while I was there. And, um, I didn't think I was going to see Paul. Like I, it's just, he knew I was there. We had each other's numbers, but I, again, I'm, I'm not trying to be, not trying to impose upon him or anything. And I remember he called me out of the blue and he's like, Hey man, hey, what are you up to? <laughs> and, and, I was like, oh, my God, it's fucking Paul Pope. I'm talking to Paul Pope on the goddamn phone. And I'm like, oh, not much, man. You know, just hanging out with my cousins and Greenpoint. He's like, oh, cool, man. Like, yeah, I'm uh, I'm a Coco 66 with Jimmy Palmiotti. And Jimmy Palmiotti, if you know comics, is like OG motherfucker. Like, he is one of the most prolific writers in comics. Came up with Joe Quesada. If you've ever watched Chasing Amy, he's in it at the beginning of the movie. He's just, he's just a big... He's a big time dude and he's got a big personality and that's going through my head. And Paul's like, do you know Jimmy? Not like, do you know of Jimmy? But like, do you know him? And I'm like, no, man, like, I don't know Jimmy Palmiotti, but I I know who he is. 
He's like, cool, man. Well, you just want to, you want to get a drink? So of course I say yes. And I'm, I, I ended up walking this, this route many a time over the years, especially once I moved to New York, it really was like a, maybe like a seven or eight minute walk. And I used to smoke American spirits and American spirits take like 10 minutes to smoke. I smoked two American spirits in the eight minutes it took to walk from JB's apartment to this bar in Greenpoint. And I remember going in and it, the bar was, it looked closed, but it was open. And it was just Paul who looks like Jim Morrison and Palmiotti who is, you know, just the most cl like classic Brooklyn dude. And they're just sitting at the bar, just kind of bullshitting. And I walk in and I sit down and it's just, I mean, Paul and I have been talking for years at this point. We'd never met in person. And so uh, I'm trying to be cool. <laughs> no, I'm not a cool person. But we we just start talking immediately. And Palmiotti's kind of like sizing me up and not saying much. And he's listening to me talk to Paul. And at some point, Paul gets up to go to the bathroom. And Palmiotti looks over at me and he's like, hey, so you make comics? I was like, uh, yeah, you know, I'm I'm just starting out, but yeah, I'm, I make comics. And Paul's walking, he's walking back at this point. And Palmiati asks, so you any good? And like, m in my mind, <laughs> I was like, I'm going to have to run out of this room right now because I can't lie to him. And I'm not that good. <laughs> and I'm, I'm like, in my head trying to figure out how to respond when Paul kind of leans into Palmiati's like yeah man he's good he's one of us and then sits back down and I could have just crawled underneath the counter and cried out of joy and exultation and fucking fear I mean it was everything and then after that we were just hanging and it was my first professional hang which is a thing in comics and just great stories great camaraderie tribal knowledge it was it was it was a clinic in making comics once again all flicker and and then maintaining it and then showing up and it was the other thing was that it was that thousand ink drawings if i hadn't just i don't know to this day if paul intended for me to make a thousand ink drawings or if he just he just man made that shit up on the fly which i would also believe but i'd have to ask him to know for a fact, but I, I have to imagine that part of the reason why he talked to me again was he just saw me do it. I just started cranking. And that that really goes. So when I was doing that drawing for Code of the West, the save your, save your breath for talking kind of thing, or I'd have, I can't remember exactly what it was. It's the one with the cowboy with his back to the camera. That's what I'm thinking about in my head. It's like you just got to, sometimes you just got to shut the fuck up and just do the work. And that, and that will speak volumes to the right person, to the right person. If you're flashy and you're showy, yeah, you'll get some people's attention, but it's not sustainable. And you can, you can do the, the Carney Barker thing quite well, especially in this day and age. And I, and, I, and I say it'll, when I say it will fail at some point, what I mean to say is that at some point it will become unsustainable. You know, if, if you are doing something that's predicated on you keeping up a house of cards constantly, well, I mean, eventually a strong wind is going to come by and just knock that shit down. So I, I always was of the mind that you got you to build foundationally. And so that's, that's part of the reason why 
code of the West is what it looks like right now and it's what it feels like, why there's a podcast, why it's kind of polished. I I I didn't just build a foundation. I like fucking dug that shit out, put up put up the the footings, like engineered it, <laughs> polished the concrete, made sure the studs could go in the right place. I mean, like I spent a lot of time just building the sub basement. <laughs> and it's a pretty it's a pretty dope basement, not gonna lie. But I'm just now, for myself anyways, for the first time, starting to frame frame it up and starting to put a building up. And I would argue that there is no building yet, that Code of the West is going to hopefully keep going for a little bit, but it's it's just going to be what it's going to be. And I don't know exactly what it's going to be yet. I mean, it's going to be some version of what you're experiencing right now and what the drop is, that kind of merchandise. But I would love to have an excuse to self-publish through Code of the West. Like my book Carver has been out of print for three, four years. And with kind of the way my career went, which is up and down, up and down, there's more people interested in my comic now that I'm not making comics than there were when I was making comics. And so I need to, I need to reprint this thing at some point. And in my head, I'm like, maybe I could just do it through this. I could just have a code of the West publishing branch or something and just do a D to C. Maybe I'd make Western comics even, you know, for, for Instagram, do the thing that I did for Filson and just do a weekly or a biweekly little anecdotal story like Mobius did for Blueberry when he was still Jean Girard, which is a great comic book, by the way, uh, Blueberry. There should be some pretty good American translations of it. Uh, but God damn it, I just did um, uh, so I don't know if anybody's keeping track, but that's the first one I noticed. But so I guess to, to sort of bring this whole thing back full circle, do try something. Do do try to figure out what's going to make you happy. If you know what the dream is, figure out what an actionable version of that is. You know, when I started trying to make comics, I didn't try to sit down and do a 120-page graphic novel. It seems like that's what everybody does for some reason. Anytime anybody's coming up to me for advice on breaking into comics, especially as a creator, like a writer and an artist, it got to the point where I would just like, I'm like, how big is your first thing you want to do? And they'd be like, well, I've got this... I've got this world figured out where, you know, I've got all the languages and, you know, the gravitational pull on, it takes place in a, in a different solar system. And, uh, you know, it's, it's got two, two suns and, you know, the ocean's tides are like, it's like, okay, cool, man. I, who gives a fuck? That's not a story. That's a, it's not even really an interesting detail. It's more like kind of crazy than anything, but people would always want to start out with the big thing, the big idea. I think it's a different version of like wanting to, just be successful immediately at something when you start it. And so what I always told people is like, if you were going to try to write a book or write a novel, most successful prose writers start with writing very short stories. I mean, very short stories, which is actually surprisingly hard because you got to get to the, you got to, you got to, it's mean and lean. There's no, there's no room there to have fat on the bone. And so it's a great way to, kind of uh, cut your teeth on storytelling. So I did that with comics. I did these, like, at first it was like, can I do a one-page comic? Well, at first it was like, can I do a panel? Then it was, can I do a few panels? Then it was, can I, can I tell a story in a page? And so I would do things like I took the scene from The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly at the end where they're in the circle and they're in the Mexican standoff, and I 
did a one page of that, but it was with uh, Dengar, Forlom, the robot bounty hunter, and Boba Fett, the bounty hunters from Star Wars The Empire Strikes Back. And, you know, introduced scene, introduced conflict, shows some kind of resolution at the end, and also draw kind of cool stuff. And then I did an issue, 22 pages. And then I did a few of those. I, that's when I started actually getting professional work where I would do like uh, a pitch that somebody was working on. Or I like uh, my first like major, major professional job was for um, this. I don't know if they're still around now. It was a publisher called Black Mask. And they did a they did a book with Ghostface Killer from the Wu-Tang Clan. And that also had an album attached to it. It seems to be a theme. And they they did it as an anthology kind of mixtape is what they called it. And I did like the last half of the last issue, which was a lot of fun and did it with this guy named Matt Rosenberg. And he allowed me to have a lot of creative freedom in it. And uh, I hope he's doing well. I don't I haven't talked to him for a while. Last I checked, he was writing Rocket Raccoon for Marvel. But um, then then I kind of and I was writing all the time I because I. Cause I I was writing since I was a little kid and I ended up doing uh, like uh, playwriting in uh, like junior high and high school through the, we had a Idaho theater for youth in Boise and they did uh, this amazing playwriting class that was taught by this guy, Dano, Dano Madden, I believe was his name. Super, super cool dude, very knowledgeable. And we would write short plays and that translated into writing short scripts for videos in high school. And I would study screenplays. I would study Joseph Campbell and the hero's journey and the, the cyclic stories. And he was just, I mean, always, always on, always trying to absorb stuff. So by the time that I was ready to sit down and do my first comic, Carver, I'd already done like a short version of Carver based on a, another story I'd heard about an African hunter by Peter Capstick Hathaway. Uh, I believe the book was Death in the, Death in the Long Grass, Death in the Tall Grass. And I wrote my version of like Indiana Jones through the lens of Hemingway and did that, wrote it. Everybody died, like I talked about in one of the previous podcasts, kind of put the hold on that. And then I went back to it eventually and rewrote it. And it, it's still an adventure story set in the 20s, but it had now a different tone because that first version, which I still love and it's bittersweet, but I'll never, ever draw it, was more like a before before sunset or before sunrise. I don't know if you ever watched that Ethan Hawke movie. It's this kind of unrequited, sappy love story about a gentleman and a fortunate adventurer guy, but you kind of peeled the layers of the onion off and sort of saw how he could become that guy. And it was in the context of him seeing his lost love, Catherine. And then I ended up taking that theme and working it into a much darker and <laughs> much more tortured story, which eventually became Carver Paris story. And that that did really well, you know, that came out and, I, you know, there's articles written in Entertainment Weekly and Hollywood Reporter and all these big time, what should be big time publications or whatever. And it's it's kind of like, even seeing behind the curtain on that's a little bit weird. Like it, a lot of that stuff's just paid placement or favors and stuff. It's not really that organic and doesn't actually really do much for you other than kind of help sell a smoke screen to other people, but it was cool. I mean, it's like being in the school newspaper, but the, 
the, the, the reason I bring it up is that you would think, again, you would think that that's a feather in my cap or you would think that that was important somehow. And I, I honestly never fucking did anything for me. It was a talking point. You know, it, it's it's one of those things where if you need to, if you're in a group of people that you need to impress for some reason, you can pull that out. But I'd argue that if you need that to impress people, then you're probably in the wrong group of people. But it was cool. It was an interesting thing to have happen and see play out. But that that occurred and then nothing happened after. And that's where I ended up in that weird year after the book came out when I was in Europe and landed back in Ohio. And when I started TCB, ZFG, trying to kind of find my way through things and being like, I, I'm not getting work. Like I, I did something that critically was, was, I mean, it won IGN.com graphic novel of the year in 2016. I, I don't know what that means other than IGN.com is a huge website and people voted on it and they internally voted on it. And then like my book won. Once again, cool, but it didn't get me any jobs. And so it, it was just this cognitive dissonance, but I just kept crawling, basically, is the best way I can put it. You just you just keep moving forward, trying desperately to figure out what it is that you're doing. And like you're making it up as you go. Everybody's making it up as they go. Anybody who's successful in your eyes, I guarantee you, is making it up as they go. And so that comes back to the perception thing, the the whole, well, if I had your skill, then I could do what you do. There is no skill at the beginning. There is just doing it and then doing it and continuing to do it and doing it with no audience. You, you're going to have to do these things with maybe maybe one or two people, your friends, your really, really good friends or family to encourage you because you, you just don't do it in a vacuum usually. And, and I, 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 you know, I know I'm kind of telling you that code of the West came around in a vacuum, but this thing code of the West came around in a vacuum, all the parts and pieces that I'm putting into play right now are all things that I've done individually over the years for different companies or for myself along my career in different ways. Like if I hadn't been a Starbucks store manager, I wouldn't be able to be at Black Rifle. If I hadn't done, uh, well, if I hadn't done the Flickr thing, I wouldn't have made comics. If I hadn't tried the iPad, I wouldn't be able to, to keep up with Evan at Black Rifle. You know, all these little things factored into me just being able to do it. Then along the way, I was trying to always find jobs or clients that were interesting to me where I could, I could learn something from them. And so it's, it kind of might've looked, I know it looked weird to people on the outside because people would tell me all the time, but I always knew why I was doing what I was doing. And I, I'd, I'd get into pretty strong debates with some people. Uh, God damn it. There's another one, two, two, three. I don't know where we're at now. People who would tell me like with the Filson thing, oh, why are you working at a Filson store? Then I had people like, why are you walking away from comics or why aren't you doing comics this way? And they were all well-intentioned. These were never people trying to be mean or demean me. It's just that you, I, I didn't know how to explain this to somebody because I didn't really know how to explain it to myself. I was just, I was betting on myself and I was learning about myself and trying to listen to my mind and and 
I let my mind come to its conclusions on its own time. Didn't force it. I used to try to force that a lot when I was in my late teens. I, I had that tendency to want to be successful overnight or like immediately when I started something. And, and that's, I think, why the Thousand Ink Drawings thing resonated with me so much with Paul is that it was the first time I was able to learn how to trick myself <laughs> because I was a perfectionist, because I wanted to be good at everything that I tried. Somehow looking at it that, that would just do a Thousand Ink Drawings, I accepted internally, okay, cool. That's my job. My job is to hit a thousand, to suck for a thousand. It's really easy then. That's just chopping wood. That's just hanging drywall. It's swapping tires out at Jiffy Lube and, and checking the oil. It's, I didn't look at it from a, a artsy fartsy. It's going to, I got to, where, where will I find the muse? It's like, no, professionals sit down and just do their shit. I later learned that was the case, but, but my intuition was I can't, well, I don't want to wait. Even if I thought the muse was a thing, I can't, I can't bet on that. I can't plan around it. So I'm just going to sit down and start doing it. And it just becomes easier with time. I mean, that's the, that's the, the dirty little secret about getting good at something. Is it, if you just do it long enough and you're, I mean, do it long enough and don't even put that much pressure on yourself. Just kind of pay attention to what you're doing and, and kind of do your post game wrap up every time you get done with something and be like, How'd that go? Could I could I have done something better there? Could I have sped that up or should I have slowed down? And when you go to do it the next time, I guarantee you it'll be a little bit better, even if you don't consciously know it. And it's super easy. It takes all the pressure off. You just you just start chopping wood and carrying water. And I I hope if there's something in your life or something that you remembered as a kid or you've come across, you're like, man, that would be the coolest thing. If you're 60 and you want to be an astronaut, it's not impossible. You might have to become a billionaire, <laughs> but but it's not impossible is my point. I, there are very few things that if you have all your limbs, functioning mind, there are very few things that you have the excuse of not of, of, of just straight up not being able to do it. And I know, I know plenty of people who are kicking ass and doing some crazy shit at Black Rifle that don't have all their parts and pieces. So even if you're missing some of those parts, at this point in my life with the people that I know, that's not even a fucking excuse. It's just not. Is it hard? Is it humbling? Absolutely. And I would say that those are the most worthwhile and beneficial things to try you're not going to grow and you're not going to learn and life's going to be so boring if you're just sitting doing the same thing over and over and over expecting a different result as well. Now, if you, if you just want to wash, rinse, repeat, and that's what's going to make you happy. And it's a little, it's a little moments in between of going fishing with your buddies or taking your kid to little league, like, man, more power to you. I really honestly wish that I was wired for that. All that stuff sounds great but I'm the person that's sitting doing a podcast at 1030 at night in my kitchen after working 12 hours at Black Rifle. And I'm happier than a pig in shit. I love it. It's my thing. But I also don't have any responsibilities outside of this. I, I don't have much of a social life anymore. I did once upon a time. And I, and I man, I drank the marrow out of life. Like, and I, I, I do love having a good, <laughs> a good 
sort of hang still when the time, when the occasion comes up and the right people are around. But, you know, that's, that was also, that's also the consequence of just having lived my life the way that I have is that I was able to do a lot of things and I was poor for most of them, but I was still able to figure out a way to go to Europe a couple of times and travel to San Diego for Comic-Con in New York. I mean, most of the, before I lived in New York and I was trying to come up in comics and I would go to San Diego and New York Comic-Con, I was, I was scraping to get the ticket. My mom usually helped me like get, get there. And then I was going to a grocery store. Like most of my San Diego's, I was sleeping on someone's floor in a hotel room and I would go to a grocery store as soon as I landed and get, get like four days worth of bags or cans of tuna and uh, some yogurt. And that's what I would eat. And I'd have money. I'd have like a little kitty saved up for us going out and hanging out in the evenings because that's kind of how you do it in comics is you, uh, you, you walk the floor and you kind of meet people. But if you're going to try to get jobs, you got to, you got to have the hang at the parties afterwards or at the hotel lobbies and the bars. So I'd have like 25 bucks. I'd have to milk somehow. And Paul was usually really good to have around because Paul would be getting invited to all these fancy places with open bars. And and Paul would do this, this Jedi mind trick thing where even if there was like a list of guests, he would just kind of come up to the, the bouncer and be like, Hey man, like, uh, yeah, I'm Paul Pope. I'm on the list. Uh, this is my buddy. He's just, he's coming in with me and they would look at him and kind of just do the stormtrooper nod. And then all of a sudden you're in an MTV party that's open bar and double fisting bullet bourbons all night. <laughs> and you're not really sure how you got there, but you know, it's good to have friends in high places. <laughs> and so, but my point is you just figure it out. You find a way and it's, that's the adventure. And I, and I think, you know, to, to sort of, I think maybe that's going to be the formula is I'm going to tell you stories and maybe try to inspire you. And then <laughs> at the end of my podcast episode, tell you how it relates back to the code of the West. <laughs> but, but there's a reason why this all played out the way that it did. And, and I think that it's not, I really genuinely mean this, what, what I'm about to say, which is that like, you just, you have to just go out there and risk something. You've got to leave the comfort and safety of civilization and then leave the city gates. That's the Joseph Campbell hero's journey, or you leave Kansas city and you strike off for Montana or you say, fuck it. Uh, I'm not going to be a Starbucks store manager my entire life. I'm going to try to figure out how to be a successful comic book writer and artist. <laughs> Cause that's, you're wired like a fucking freak of nature. And, and you just go out and you, you do the Oregon trail thing. You try not to drown in the first river crossing and, or get cholera and, and you just keep going. And, and it gets easier. I promise you it gets easier. The more you do it, just doing that's like the skill thing. It's like, it's another version of the chop wood carry water. Like the more things, the more unknown territories you, you walk into, the more you realize that there's not much to fear and that it's just a lot of fun to, to go out and meet new people. And, and as long as you come correct, if you've got manners and, and you're not an asshole, you can, you can do the Paul Pope thing and Jedi mind trick your way into a lot of scenarios. I'm going to have to get Paul's one of the people I want to have on to at some point, because Paul's got a code. It's not unlike mine and it's, it's relatable to the code of the West, but 
he's got a you know thing about positive mental attitude PMA that I think would be worth talking to him about. Plus, I just I love him. He's my big brother, and I owe so much to him. So here's your homework. Then take some time, find a quiet spot, put some good some good music on. Sometime in the next week, and just sit down and let your mind wander a little bit. But the thing that the thing that you should be sitting down with before you do that is wondering what that thing might be. What's the thing that makes you happy, or what's that thing that you know you know you'd regret now after listening to me ramble for four episodes? What would be that thing that when you're 45, 50, 60, that thing that you'd be looking in the mirror and going, "Man, man, I wish I'd done that." And if you can, if you can come up with it, maybe you don't come up with that first time. Keep doing the exercises. I mean, because there's nothing wrong with just chilling out and listening to some music, taking some me time. But if you do get to that thing, maybe take some time to write down some ways you could kind of start chopping wood with it, and and start getting some getting some reps in. And you know, again, don't don't do it from the perspective of of to be famous or to make a shit ton of money at it. I'd argue that when you do it for the right reasons, and I know this is going to sound so hippy dippy, but that, that when that intention is there, I think that that affects a lot of things that if like it's people talk about baking with love, you can taste, you can taste something that's baked with love. If that's true. And I I do believe it is true. I can't, I can't qualify it scientifically, but I do think that there's something to that. Maybe love just equals more butter. Uh, I don't know, but when you when you go into it with the right intention, I do think that it's unconsciously recognized a lot of times by people that are interacting with it or consuming it. And so know that it's never too late to just try to be happy and try to feel actualized and try to take a chance. It's it's fun. It's a lot of fun. And it's like a roller coaster. It's a little bit scary, but you also know that like the roller coaster is not going to go off the rails. Probably like one in a billion, maybe, but most of the time it's going to be fine. And just see what it's like, see what it feels like. Try it on for, try it on for a little bit. Go send that message that you always wanted to send to your hero comp artist, <laughs> you know, see what happens. What do you got to lose? You know? And then if, uh, you know, if you're able to kind of figure out something or something comes to mind and you're able to like, kind of action it a little bit, holler at me on Instagram, you know, make, put a comment up or something. I'd be curious. Cause I mean, um, I don't think I'm giving you scary advice or anything that's going to get you in trouble, hopefully, but I would love to hear it. If, if you guys kind of take some of this to heart and just give something a shot, cause I think you'll find that it's worth, you know, the, the, the risk reward on this is pretty high. Well, the risk is low and the reward is high. So anyways, until I talk to you guys again, thanks. Thanks for everybody who's been tuning in. I've been seeing the numbers go up on the on the podcast, which is really encouraging in a way. Uh, more like it just, I don't feel like a schmuck. So thank you. And then, um, yeah, I'm going to have some more announcements probably. Like I'm going to hopefully have some samples in hand for the merch drop. I just announced today that we're going to do the Never Corner Something Meaner Than You for the first the first drop. And um, I'll have pictures of the prints and the hats and stuff soon, too. So uh, keep your eyes peeled on the 
on the Instagram for that, the code of the West. And yeah, maybe I'll see you guys on the next one. <laughs>